0: Today's reading is Mark 1, 16 to 20, The Calling of the First Disciples. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, as your new lead pastor, I've been dreaming up uh, a radical new vision for where our church may be called in the, next pa- uh, in the next chapter. Something I really believe is essential for us. I've been so excited to get to share with you today for the first time. It goes like this. Be with Jesus. <laughs> Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. What do you think? I hope you're on board. So... Um, If you're new around here, this is not a particularly enthusiastic room. It's just that that's not a new vision. That's the old vision. And it's not original to Bridgetown. It's original to Jesus. Uh, That vision, when Jesus said it, sounded as simple as this, follow me. In the first century, the invitation was called discipleship. And we use that word in the church still today. But when we use it, we almost always use it as a verb. Who are you discipling? Are you being discipled? By which we usually mean some version of one-to-one mentorship involving weekly meetings and, and some kind of guided book study, which is great. I'm all for those things, but it's just not the way that discipleship is used biblically. Biblically, when we read the word disciple, it's almost always as a noun. It's an identity that you take on, not something that you do. It is a statement about who you are. And disciples in Jesus' day were people who committed their entire selves to live under a rabbi's life and teaching. The English word that we use today that most entirely captures it is apprentice. An apprentice is someone that's trying to learn something from a master to take on everything about who they are. And that involves sitting and talking, of course, but it also involves practicing and doing. If you're trying to learn a trade, like uh, learning from a mechanic, if you're apprenticing under a mechanic, you certainly need to talk and learn, but at some point you've got to get your hands greasy. You can't just watch him or her take apart the engine and then know how to do it. You have to get involved and participate and do it yourself. Now, Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi with disciples, And I'm not just talking about the twelve, it includes the twelve, but it's bigger than that. Jesus had the inner three, then he had the twelve, he had the larger group of the seventy-two, and then he had what the Gospel authors called the crowds, which was a broader group of disciples that included male and female disciples, peasants and the privileged, political liberals and conservatives. And Jesus definitely sat with and taught those disciples. But he also made them participants, working along with him. He then sent them out with authority to um, carry out the acts that he did and the things he was teaching. Eventually, he even blessed them to go and make disciples of their own. And our best attempt to summarize that whole ancient journey called discipleship goes like this. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Let's ring out each one of those for everything it's worth. So first, be with Jesus. Will you turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16? It's what Stephanie just read. Um, Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, would you raise your hand right now? And we've got some folks who will pass a Bible to you. I would really encourage you to actually read out of a Bible made of paper and not just an app on your phone because of a whole bunch of stuff uh, that has to do with your attention span and, and honestly, how pathways in your brain respond. So all that kind of stuff. Anyway, we don't need to get into it. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, the one that's being passed to you right now is a gift to you. Take it home. Read it. We sincerely believe that it will change your life. Um, but if you will follow along with me, Mark chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. Now, I want to stop right there for a second because uh, something revolutionary has just happened. Jesus flipped the script. First century Jewish discipleship was super exclusive and desirable. Rabbis did not go out looking for disciples. Disciples were fighting, achieving, competing, and proving themselves to a particular rabbi in hopes of gaining an audience. It was the ancient equivalent of applying to an Ivy League school or trying to get drafted as a professional athlete. Tons of kids grew up dreaming of becoming disciples, but only the best of the best of the best actually made the cut. And Jesus flips the script on the whole system. Come, follow me. He invites the leftovers, those who have been rejected by the other rabbis. It is a stunning statement of chosenness, one that rewrites the identities of all who received it. When Jesus called Simon, he gave him a new name, Peter. That's a renewed identity. When he called Levi the tax collector, he suddenly took on the identity, Matthew the disciple. He was defined by his career, now he's defined by his rabbi, Jesus It's explicit with some, and it's implicit with others, but by turning a competition for the elite into a free invitation, Jesus is offering a new identity to each one of them and to each one of us. Called. That's the word for it. This is a different kind of rabbi turning the whole discipleship system upside down. And not long after this moment in Mark 1, Jesus expands that first invitation in Mark chapter 3. He says this, He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus will teach his disciples everything he knows. He will send them out to preach. He will fill them with the very power that has filled him. But first, he called them that they might be with him. Be with Jesus. That's where discipleship starts. And one of the things that really got Jesus into trouble with the religious establishment was the way he prayed. Because when Jesus prayed, he called God Abba. And by the first century, there was such reverence for God that they no longer used the personal name Yahweh. More commonly, they referred to God as Elohim, which is a title and one of reverence, but not particularly one of intimacy. It's it's calling someone by their title instead of their name, calling someone doctor instead of Susan or sir instead of Jerry. It's respectful, it's formal, but it's also distant. Because the more uh, relational intimacy you have with someone, the more you drop the formality of a title. And my wife, Kirsten, does not call me pastor. (laughs) She calls me Tyler. And the four gospels are written in Greek, but not every word. Abba an Aramaic term, sneaks through untranslated. And that's likely because it was such an intimate term, the early writers weren't sure exactly how to translate it without diminishing Jesus' voice. Even our modern English translation, some 2,000 years later, hold an untranslated Aramaic word right there in the text, Abba. It was the most intimate term one could possibly call a father. The closest thing that we have in English is a toddler calling their father Dada, but that doesn't quite do it for me, because Abba wasn't something that you grew out of with age, that you matured beyond calling your father. Like if my uh, three-year-old Simon, who I was just holding up here, if he calls me Dada now, it's cute, but if he comes home for Christmas at 30 and calls me Dada, he needs to see someone, right? Uh, Abba wasn't like that. It was a term of endearment from a son to a father that was so stunning in its intimacy that a translation just seemed to strip it of its voice. Jesus spoke to Yahweh with such familiarity that we cannot translate it. I'll never forget the first time I took a flight alone with one of my kids. It was... Hank, when he was two years old, and we were going to visit my in-laws, but Kirsten was going down a day earlier than me, and I said, why don't you just like, let Hank hang back with me, and then I'll bring him down. I thought I was just crushing it as a father and husband by buying her 24 hours. And so she agreed to this, but was walking me meticulously through all of these instructions about everything that needed to be in the carry-on and what time I needed to arrive at the airport. And I was going, like, Kay, I've got this. We're doing a boys trip, relax. Enjoy your family. I should have listened closer to those instructions. Uh, We came within a hair of missing the flight. Very last people on the plane. Barely made it. I was sprinting through LaGuardia with Hank and like switching him between arms. By the time we got onto the flight, I realized that I brought no snacks. Zero. For the trip as a whole. The tablet that was supposed to sedate him for three hours forgot to charge it. Didn't have a charge. So there I am. I I thought I was going to be working on this flight while he just watched an irresponsible amount of Fireman Sam. And instead, I'm using my device. I'm paying like $28 for Wi-Fi that barely works and streaming anything I can get to stream just to kind of keep him occupied. I'm putting my AirPods in his ears and then wrapping a scarf around them because they're too big to fit so they'll just hold against his head somehow. Hank ate approximately 12 packs of pretzels, drank four cans of what he calls spicy water. And as we neared the second hour of the flight, he was dancing in his seat. You know, he's sitting there watching. And I I kept leaning over going, hey buddy, um, do you need to go to the bathroom? Nope! Can we have more pretzels? The headphones, you know, he was speaking loudly. so eventually, they announce our final descent, at which point he says, Dad, I need to go to the bathroom right now. And immediately after saying that, he didn't make it there. Uh, he used the restroom in the window seat of this particular Delta cabin. Um, I picked him up and took the carry-on bag. I would meticulously packed with me, made my way back to the lavatory. The flight attendants tried to stop me, but I just like barreled right through. I was getting in there. I unfolded the changing table. I laid Hank down on the changing table. I took out the bag. Oh no. I put the diapers in the bag that we checked. Now, it would be uh, not appropriate for me to go into detail on what took place next. I'll just summarize it as this. Uh, They have women's pads in airplane lavatories. And if you pack enough of those in, and then pull the pants up extra high and tie the drawstring, you can make your own diaper. And I made my own. By the time we had made it to baggage claim, uh, the diaper I constructed wasn't holding and neither were the seltzers that he had drank. And so my entire hip was soaked in his urine, so were his pants. When our bag finally came around on the belt, I'm, I'm laying him down in the middle of a crowded airport and changing him into an actual diaper. And as I looked at him there against the awful multicolored airport carpet with all of the commotion around me, I said to him with total sincerity, I love you so much, buddy. And I've had such a fun trip with you. <laughs> and I meant it. I was so overcome with affection for him. With affection for this guy who in the last three hours had stolen my devices, used my headphones, ate my pretzels, urinated on my hip, got me in trouble with the flight staff and made three hours feel like 30. If anyone else had done half of that to me, I'd struggle to tolerate them, much less love them. It makes no sense logically, but there's a mystery written into the heart of a parent, love this uncontrollable love for this person who mostly just terribly inconveniences you. (laughs) And if we're made in the image of God, and I believe that we are, then the mysterious heart of a father that lives in me points back to one place. To the one who promises to love me with an everlasting love that I can't shake no matter how hard I try. To the one that the priest called Elohim, but Jesus called Abba. See, you can make a mess of your life as as often as you like. You can incessantly lose the plot of the only true story. You could ignore everything he tries to tell you that's important and blame him for all sorts of things he's got nothing to do with. And there's still a mysterious affection in the father's heart for you. Renero Cantalamessa says this: If the written word of the Bible changed into a spoken word and became one single voice, this voice, more powerful than the roaring of the seas, would cry out, "The Father." loves you. And so it's no wonder that the image of Father has been so distorted by so many earthly fathers who have abused the title. I mean, can you imagine how much is at stake if we could really grasp the Father's love for us? Jesus calls his disciples that we might be with him, that we might know his love, delight in his company, and discover our true selves, rediscover the name he gave us first in the light of his presence that we might be with him. The flip side of this comes near the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says to the many that have preached in his name, worked miracles in his name, spoken prophetic words, and worked demonic deliverance in his name, and that's not small-time stuff, by the way, I will tell them plainly, Jesus says, I never knew you. The invitation was such a radical reversal of the world that at that time, of their order, that we cannot import our system into this call of Jesus and then call it discipleship. You see, still very early on, the disciples were getting antsy with this being with Jesus business. They were ready to get productive. This is John 6. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, the Greek definition of believe here, it's it's an active, walked-in sort of belief. It's not a passive intellectual conclusion. It's an active, practiced kind of life. That means that don't believe and can't receive are one and the same. So you can believe something in your brain, but not in your bones. You can recite a doctrine, but then have repetitive thought patterns and emotional cycles that directly contradict that doctrine. And the sort of belief that Jesus is talking about is an embodied belief. It's a walked-in kind of belief. It's not intellectually accepting the promises of Jesus. It's receiving them into my here and now living, breathing, walking daily life. And now in my second decade of pastoral ministry, I can confidently say that the number one obstacle a modern believer faces when it comes to discipleship is the love of God. We struggle to believe in a God as powerful, good, knowable, and loving as the one Jesus introduces us to. Believe it intellectually, sure, but receive it. Actively walk in it. This is the work of God. Not to intellectually accept a series of doctrinal truths. It's that Abba would get all the way into your bones to rewrite your family history and your generational dysfunction, that ABBA would travel the neural pathways of your brain and heal your self-destructive thought patterns, that it would live in your gut until it calms your anxiety, that it would stop the incessant need to be a certain someone in a certain room, or the constant temptation to let some other voice, your resume, or your boyfriend, or your supervisor, or your family of other... Of origin some other voice define you or even the temptation to define god by all of those things to insist that he's someone other than abba i love the insight of the commentator frederick dale bruner he says that the best modern translation for the ancient greek word believe in john's gospel is the modern english word relax what do you want us to do jesus I want you to relax into my promises. I want you to take me seriously enough that in the midst of your anxiety, stress, chaos, you're able to relax with me. Is that what you think about when you think about what God requires of you? It's fitting that John was the one who stressed this because after Jesus predicted his own death, after he was living with a bounty on his head and even used bread to symbolize his broken body and wine to, to, as a memorial for his shed blood, in the midst of all of that chaos and disorientation and confusion and legitimate cause for worry, where's John? He's leaning on the chest of Jesus, literally relaxing into the rabbi a living picture of the work that God requires. So here's the work. Relax into the identity that you can't earn because it was freely given. This rabbi has turned the tables around on the entrance requirement. You did not choose me, but I chose you, he told them at that last supper. You see, before Jesus' discipleship was an application to an Ivy League school, Jesus turned it into a call to any who would receive it. Why? That you might be with him. Be with Jesus. Secondly, become like Jesus. The 15th century painter, Filippo Lippi, did a piece called The Virgin and the Child that I want you to take a look at. Now, despite being acclaimed, this particular painting uh, has taken a beating by art critics over the years. Because the proportions are all wrong. The hills are way too exaggerated, the kneeling saints on either side are awkward and unhuman-looking. A critic named Robert Cumming wrote his own critique of the piece, but after it was published, he discovered something that had been lost for generations, and that is that this painting was not done for an art gallery. It was commissioned as an altarpiece to hang at the front of a church in the place of prayer. And so coming, went back, and he knelt down in front of the painting. And when he did, all of the proportions came into alignment. They were perfect. The hills, the saints, Mary's gaze at Jesus, it was a masterpiece. But only if you looked at it from your knees. This is Luke 5. Jesus comes and finds Peter fishing uh, a second time. And after a full night without a catch, he tells him to throw his nets onto the other side. I'll pick up right there. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So notice who's present here. Peter, James, and John, the same people in Mark chapter 1. And notice what the invitation is that Jesus gives them. I'll send you out to fish for people. That's the same invitation he gave them in Mark chapter 1. Only this time around, that invitation is received by the same people from a new vantage point. He fell at Jesus' knees. Abba, that's how they know God first, Lord. That's who we discover God to be when we fall on our knees. N.T. Wright says there are two journeys of liberation in Exodus. The first is to get Israel out of slavery. The second is to get slavery out of Israel. So uh, first, there's a a journey where we discover our chosenness and meet our Abba Father. That's called grace. But then when we hit our knees before our Lord Jesus, there's a second journey, and it's called freedom. Freedom. And sadly, many Christians today have discovered the former without the latter. We've invented a version of discipleship without mature freedom. And that's a version that you will not find anywhere on the pages of Scripture. Scripture goes on to say things like this. This is Hebrews 5. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. Baby food is perfect for a, an infant who's learning to chew, but if I met you for lunch and I pulled out a Tupperware of mashed up carrots, you'd start to wonder, wouldn't you? Solid food is for the mature. And just as a brief aside, I, I was sharing this with someone from our community this week, and she said, yeah, Tyler, I hear you on that, but adult baby food is actually a real trend right now. And then she directed me to a link. Do we have it? Do we have it or No. Okay, we don't have it. Anyway, this is a real thing. She showed me there's a, a, a new diet, Portland. You guys have got to get your dietary restrictions under control. Adult baby food just feels a step too far. So, but if you're on that, I just wanted to say no shade. I didn't know. I was just trying to make this point that the invitation of discipleship that we grow into is mature grace. So how do we grow up? We have to travel the second liberation journey. And in Exodus, that's all the boring parts. It's, it's after the action montages of 10 plagues and parting seas and a pillar of fire that serves as your trail guide. God then gives a whole bunch of detailed instructions for ordinary living, commands for building a counterculture in the daily grind of ordinary life. It's the part of Exodus where the Bible and a year people all lose steam, but it's solid food. It's how God gets enslavement out of them. It's the journey Peter takes on his knees. You see, Jesus came as a liberator, restoring our true identity, and he came as Lord, because we need reformation to live into and enjoy the freedom that this new identity affords us. Jesus is just as as upfront about the pathway of discipleship as he is about the destination. I came to bring life and life to the full, But it's going to feel like losing your life at first. It's going to feel like giving up your autonomy and your control. It's going to feel like your lordship gets surrendered to another. But that's the only way to take a hold of this thing. And when he's quizzed about the greatest commandment, Jesus says, love God and love people. All the law and the prophets hang on those two things. And the teacher of the law who asked Jesus the question is impressed and agrees 100%. And then Jesus says something really cryptic to him. When he saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any questions. See, to understand is to come close, but if you want this life, if you want in on this kingdom, you've got to embody it. You have to know God equally as Abba and as Lord. And Jesus is saying something bluntly to this man that we all understand intuitively, and that's that all true creative freedom happens within limits, right? Poets operate within the ordered 14 lines of a sonnet for the sake of creative freedom and expression. And an artist paints within the four corners of a canvas for the sake of creative freedom and expression. And a musician respects the sheet music to join the free expression of the harmony of all the other instruments. Creative freedom is the invitation, but it will feel like constraints at first. God's forgiven you everything, past, present, and future. That's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. And it was a costly gift. The cost was his life, but he paid it so that for you and me, that gift might be free. That's called grace, and that is good news. But he didn't set you free so that you could then lie in a prison cell that the door stands open to. He didn't set you free only so that after you die, you might go to a place called heaven. He set you free so that you could know the full, eternal, lasting kind of life right now. So that heaven and earth could overlap in your inner being, in your numbered days on this earth. That's who Jesus is, and freedom is to become like him. And that's also good news. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. It remains an abstract idea, a myth, which has a place for the fatherhood of God, but omits Christ as the living son. I guess you could sum it up this way. If you want the life of Jesus, you have to take on the lifestyle of Jesus. So I wanna offer you a map of discipleship because if you're on a journey, it can be helpful to stop and to see where you've come from and to remember where you're going. Only map isn't really the right term because we know that the spiritual life is not a linear track. It's not a start from one place to go to another. It's more like a cycle that we go through stage after stage after stage, repeating ourselves as we are formed into his image. So I want to give you a cycle of spiritual maturity. I'm borrowing this from Pete Gregg, who summarizes it into three stages. See, sacrifice, celebrate. You see, see is all about the wonders of God. It's often what we call revelation. Something new is discovered and seen about God and his invitation to us. It's come, follow me. He's chosen me. He's calling me. It's that moment. And then there's sacrifice. Every invitation from God then requires us to lay something down. There's always a stripping off before there's a putting on. It's Jesus saying, you can bring all of this with you, but or I'm sorry, you can't bring all of this with you. When I said drop your nets, I meant drop your nets. But look where I'm taking you. I love the words of Eugene Peterson, who says, following Jesus doesn't get us where we want to go it gets us where Jesus goes. (laughs) So discipleship to Jesus did not make Peter and the others more popular. It did not get them in on the inner circles of exclusive company that following another rabbi would have gotten them in on. It actually brought them into proximity with the marginalized, with those who were rejected from the temple, with those who were thought to be unclean and furthest from God. It cost them, and it cost them greatly socially. And yet it was in that exact place where they experienced the presence of God. It was there that they saw his power poured out and they encountered his person. They saw God at work in the very places and among the very people they had been told to avoid. So see sacrifice, and then we celebrate. On the other side of sacrifice always comes blessing. Once we have seen something about God worth risking coming empty-handed to God, he then pours blessing out to us. So discipleship comes at a cost. Jesus was upfront about that part, and that part has never changed, but neither has the return. Dallas Willard calls any sacrifice on the way of discipleship to Jesus the bargain of our lives. So I show you this just to ask, can you find yourself in that cycle somewhere? Can you name the stage that you're in right now? Because when you can, it permits you to live freely into that stage. Or maybe to recognize that I'm moving from one of these stages to the next one, and so I can freely let go of this that I don't need to hold on to, so I can take hold of where God's inviting me next. Because so often we get stuck somewhere in this cycle and our discipleship stalls. Like some of us never see, even for the first time, either because we've never heard the good news or because our hearts are hard toward it. But many people have had their eyes opened but are unwilling to sacrifice just won't drop their nets. They catch a vision of Jesus, but then they try to pull their their already full life into that, and it never works. Others of us romanticize the hardship, and so we never enter into the celebration. Like somewhere along the way, we got the idea that God was into carrying a cross, but not into resurrection life. That he's all for fasting, but he's suspicious of feasting. That he's for ashes, but not beauty. And those people are often the ones that you respect, but, uh, and, and live very devoutly, but it's in an unattractive way. You, know, you respect them, but you also don't want to become like them. But the most common place that so many of us get stuck is we get to celebration, and we try to cling to it and don't move into, into the next revelation of who God is. We assume that when the celebration is going, when it's not constant, that something has gone wrong, and so we scramble to try to get back to the stage that we're being invited beyond. When the truth is, there's more celebration coming, but it's on the other side of a new revelation about who he is, seeing again, and a new sacrifice that he's calling you into. Hey, it's like the party's over and you're inside flipping the lights on, like just refusing to leave, and God's saying, there's another party that awaits you, but you've got to follow me there. So we meet Jesus standing up on our own two feet, but we grow up on our knees when we know Jesus is Lord. At some point, Peter went back to fishing. Chronologically, Luke 5 falls historically after Mark chapter 1. Luke's documenting a second event. It was not dropping his nets that first time that sent Peter on this second liberation journey. It was when Jesus filled his nets with the miraculous catch. It was when Jesus gave him a glimpse of himself fully alive in the kingdom of God. When Peter understood the magnitude of Jesus' call in his life, not only that he was liberated, but that he was called to be a liberator. Not only that he was a grace receiver, but he was being sent out as a grace dispenser. When Peter glimpsed himself as a participant along with Jesus, the one who gave him a new name, Peter then gave Jesus a new name, Lord. Lord, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not who you think I am. Jesus thinks of you far more than you'll ever think of yourself. And when you glimpse his call in your life, it will terrify you and bring you to your knees because of how big it is. Romans 8 says creation groans for the the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Creation groans for those who are brought near to their Abba to fall on their knees and whisper, Lord. And that happens at all stages in the journey. Maturity is a cycle and so some who have followed Jesus for decades will fall on their knees before him again today. And some who have helped plant this church, who have heard some version of this talk so many times, they can quote it with a pretty convincing John Mark Comer impression, will fall to their knees again today. And some who have cozied up to their Abba and spent their entire faith journey on their own two feet will fall to their knees for the first time today and whisper, Lord, Lord, Richard Foster says, All of creation watches expectantly for the springing up of a disciplined, freely gathered martyr people who know in this life, the life and power of the kingdom of God, it's happened before, it can happen again. Creation waits. Can we be those people? Can we be the sort of disciples who dance in our chosenness before Abba and fall on our knees before our Lord Jesus? Be with Jesus, become like Jesus. And then lastly, do what Jesus did. And I'm going to go unreasonably fast through this bit, and that's because we'll spend the entire fall working it out together. Following a two weeks of vision, I'll be teaching through the final practice in this five-year journey called Practicing the Way, which all concludes with demonstrating the gospel, a two-and-a-half-month deep weeds exploration of everything I'm about to cover, the broad strokes of, in five minutes. So if we're going to talk about doing what Jesus did, first we need to establish, well, what exactly did Jesus do? Well, let him speak for himself. Jesus called his ministry the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me out to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Later on, when John the Baptist is asking if Jesus really is the Savior, he again summarizes his ministry. Go and tell John what you see and hear, and then he repeats more or less the same thing in new wording. Jesus' ministry, in summary, was a stunning revelation of love. It was powerful love, meaning love by the power of the Spirit, and it was suffering love, meaning love by the suffering of Christ. So let's explore each of those. First, it was powerful love. There is no denying that there's a supernatural element to the way Jesus expresses the Father's love. I mean, he heals the terminally ill, he delivers the demon possessed, the disabled are tap dancing in front of him after a single word from his lips. Jesus' supernatural ministry, though, wasn't just haphazard magic tricks. His miracles were signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God, they were good news for the poor. Freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, healing for the sick, salvation for the lost. It is very, very hard, I would actually argue that it's entirely impossible, to believe the claims of Jesus and deny the miraculous works of Jesus. Many have tried, though. Most famously, Thomas Jefferson was quite fond of Jesus as a spiritual guru, but wasn't buying the supernatural bits. So he literally chopped up the Bible, cutting out all the miracle stories just so he could keep the teachings of Jesus. But what he was left with was so tattered, the book would barely hold together. And that's because in each of the four Gospels, Jesus' miracles and his teachings are intertwined. They're all wrapped together. You cannot separate one from the other. Okay, then now that we know what he did, how did Jesus do what he did? Where did his power come from? Well, the biblical teaching is everything Jesus did came by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before his baptism, when all three synoptic gospels say the Spirit descended on him, Jesus did not utter a single word of teaching or work a single miracle. All of that came from this one source, the Spirit descended on him. And then after his baptism, Jesus goes around with the power of God just flowing out of him in every variety The gospel writers go to great lengths to show us that it is the Spirit empowering everything Jesus is doing. Let me just show you as an example from Luke, Luke chapter 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. A few verses later, Luke 4, 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, uh, led by the Spirit. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Three verses after that, Jesus, uh, speaking for himself now, says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because... And then everything else flows from there. And it just goes on like this. The Holy Spirit is the power source behind everything that Jesus did and taught. And that matters because near the end of his life, Jesus started talking a whole lot about leaving and sending. I'm going, but it's good for you if I go, because unless I go, I cannot send you my Spirit. After his death and resurrection, he appears to his disciples, breathes on them and says, receive my Holy Spirit. And the remainder of the New Testament is essentially ordinary people doing the same stuff Jesus did. It's the apostles speaking words of knowledge, casting out demons and praying open prison cells. It's it's them writing instructions to the church for the responsible, ordered use of the supernatural when you gather together like this. To summarize, it is good news for the poor Freedom for the oppressed, sight for the blind, healing for the sick, and salvation for the lost. It's ordinary people filled with the spirit of Jesus doing the works of Jesus. My favorite summary personally is the benediction of Teresa of Avila who says, Christ has no body now but yours. Go out and be Christ's body to the world. And that's our call. As a community of disciples, it's to be Christ's body incarnated here in Portland at school drop-off and at work on Monday morning and at dinner with your friends on Thursday night and on slow Saturday mornings. See, we are supernatural people and discipleship is the journey of discovering and embodying that. That being said, the most profound use of Christ's body wasn't opening the eyes of the blind or preaching to the masses. It was not cleansing the leper or forgiving the rap sheet of the sex worker. Greater love has no one than this, he said to lay down your life for your friends. The most profound act of love was not when Jesus acted like God by doing. It's when he acted like God by suffering. And so there is the powerful love of Jesus. And there's the suffering love of Jesus. We call Jesus' crucifixion his passion. But we use that word today quite differently than the ancients did. We say things like, I'm really passionate about photography. We use the word passion to relate things we really, really like. But the word passion comes from the Latin passio, meaning willing to suffer for. Lasting legacy is always tied to passion. Everyone who's ever shaped history did so through willing suffering. They had something outside of themselves worth suffering for. So what are you passionate about? What are you willingly suffering for, honestly? Maybe, to some degree, you you will willingly suffer for career accolades. Maybe you'll endure spurts of willing suffering to make your body look the way you want it to. Or or you'll suffer to uh, prove yourself to him or her or them. See, we live in a city and at a time and in a culture that suffers for things with an expiration date. Because no one reads off your resume at your funeral. And no one's summer body looks tight in the nursing home. And no one's paying attention to whatever you're proving except for you because we're all just as insecure as you are trying to prove our own thing. In a city that is obsessed with comfort and averse to suffering, those who live by passion will shape history. Those who live by passion get to write the story. So what's God calling me to do? That's that question, that million-dollar question that paralyzes so many of us, right? Should I live in this city or take this job? Should I pursue this relationship or marry this person? Should I make this change? What's God calling me to do? It's a good question, one that emerges from a well-meaning place. A mentor of mine uh, answers it in a surprisingly direct way. Well, yeah, sure, I mean, I guess I could pray for you about that, but why don't I just save us both a little bit of time and tell you? Tell me. Yeah, I know what God's calling you to do. Okay, what is it? God's calling you to be a worship leader, but not the kind that holds a guitar. God's calling you to spend yourself on behalf of the poor, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, to shelter the houseless. Your call is to learn the names of your neighbors and care about how they're doing. It is to pray so hard that your tears say what your words can't. Your call is to listen to listen presently and attentively to the burdens of your friends, to listen especially to those you disagree with, letting story turn caricature into humanity. It is to preach the gospel in winsome ways most of the time in a few awkward ways in the exception moments. It's to love the person hardest for you to love and forgive the person who won't admit that they've wronged you in the first place. It's to endure personal embarrassment so someone else doesn't have to and to get beyond your comfort zone to enter his or hers. Your call is to read scripture constantly enough, slowly enough, that God's reality is the one that lives in you. It's to share a prophetic word because it might be way off, but it just might be God. It's to pray for healing even when it didn't work last time and to use your voice to advocate for the silenced. Your call is to hug that woman who's a hugger and fist-bump the guy who barely even wants you to do that. It's to unload the dishwasher when you did not dirty a single one of those dishes and to wipe the toilet seat when someone else's kid made the mess. It's to visit your sick friend in the hospital and call your mom to see how she's doing. It's to get to know an incarcerated individual by name and to keep on gathering in your community, even when they're underwhelming and awkward and difficult and their social media posts make you want to set your hair on fire. Your call is to live today like God is Father and everyone around you is sister or brother and to believe, really believe that that is enough to renew the whole of creation because he has filled you with his spirit and called you to be his witness. Church, here is your call. It's powerful love and suffering love to the ordinary people who make up your ordinary life. The way we say that around here is do what Jesus did. And don't forget that as you do, you're being cheered on by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone there before and lived this life of passion and say, this, this is life and life to the full. So give it all away. Every last bit, everything you've got, give it away so that you can finally be full. Let's land here. If anyone wants to be my disciple, no rabbi's ever said anything like that. You come to us, remember? Rabbis are selective and exclusive. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Anyone? Anyone. The wounded, the jaded, the doubting, the addicted, the ashamed, the angry, the self-obsessed, the rich, the poor, the weak, those who don't know they're weak, the helpless, and those who think they don't need any help. Anyone. Jesus started redemption with a few of the leftovers after the other rabbis had handpicked the cream of the crop. And then through flawed people, God offered redemption to other flawed people, and here we are. And we continue to live that out in this local church through midweek communities in homes by gathering around tables. Because a weekly Sunday gathering, as much as I believe in it, is insufficient for the ancient call of becoming a disciple. And so I just wanna humbly but clearly call you back to community. If you've been waiting for a clear invitation from someone to to return from COVID hibernation, this is it. I wanna invite you back safely, of course. But I want to invite you back into the joy and complexity and supernatural and ordinary way of discipleship with Jesus. And that involves real relationship with real people in the ways that you can safely engage in that. I want to call you back to your church family. And that's not for me. Honestly, I'm a grown-up. I'll sleep fine tonight either way. But it's for you. It's out of love for you. Because this way of discipleship, it is life and life to the full. Dallas Willard says it this way, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. We'll close with the words of Jesus that we started with. Mark Mark chapter 1. Verse 16, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. What is your response? Will you drop your nets? Will you fall on your knees whispering, Lord? Will you live empowered by the spirit to suffer in love for others? Come, follow me.